This morning's reading starts with Matthew 27, beginning at 62 and reading to 66. This is the start. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, Remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went, and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now we move to Matthew 28, 1 to 15. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, women, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him 
and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of God. Morning, everyone. My name's Ken. Uh, if you haven't met me yet, uh, it's great to be with you, and it's great for you to be with us on this fantastic morning. Um, we've already been greeted with "He is risen." He's risen indeed. And as we've just heard read from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' resurrection is indeed what we're focusing on this morning. So, will you join with me in asking God for His enabling to understand and respond rightly? Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for today, this special day that we especially remember, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Uh, we've read through this account in Matthew's Gospel, and as we spend some time thinking about it, we ask for your uh, help for each one of us to enable us to understand not only what it means, but how we can respond to it rightly. And so we pray that you do that in us right now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A simple jar of Vegemite. Nothing particularly special, I assume, that you're all thinking. But it did make the news this week after someone posted this photo of duty-free Vegemite being sold at Sydney Airport for $19 a jar. That's almost $34 a kilogram, as the little label down the bottom helpfully points out. Now, it sparked a bit of online outrage and mocking of the exorbitant prices being charged for things at the airport. But having lived in Thailand, I wasn't actually that surprised by a price of $34 a kilo. See, in Chiang Mai, where we lived, Vegemite was imported, and the cost was about that, sometimes even a little bit more. The way to get around the cost was to get supplies direct from Australia. And normally that relied on friends coming for a visit. But one weekend I accompanied a friend, an injured friend, back to Australia. I was only in Australia for 48 hours. Some friends drove me back to Sydney Airport and being early, because I hadn't arranged it, uh, I asked could we stop at a supermarket on the way. I bought two of the biggest jars of Vegemite that you can buy, anticipating the reception that I would receive when I made it back to my family with two giant jars of black gold. <laughs> but sadly, I had overlooked something very important. It was already post 9-11, and so Vegemite is now classified at the airport as a gel. Having only my carry-on bag... I recklessly took my treasure with me through customs. To security, the unopened jars of Vegemite weren't treasure. They were a potential terrorist threat, a place to hide a weapon of mass destruction. As a result, my treasure was confiscated and unceremoniously dumped in the garbage. You know what they say, one man's treasure is another man's trash. So it was exactly the same thing, a jar of Vegemite, two jars of Vegemite, but it produced very different responses, exactly the same thing, but given vastly different value. 
And the passage we're looking at this morning likewise contains differing responses and differing values to the same thing. Yet this is one of those comparisons in which our response to the Bible's account is infinitely more important than our response to a sandwich spread. Matthew records for us the responses to the resurrection. The first response is that of the chief priests and Pharisees in verses 62 to 66. The second responses are those of the women and the guards in verses 1 to 10. And then in verses 11 to 15, we have the final response of the guards, the chief priests and the elders. There's a range of terrible responses surrounding the one right response, which indicates that Matthew is focused on answering the question, what is the right response to the resurrection? Today, as we focus on it, how should we respond to Jesus' resurrection? Well, firstly, in verses 62 to 66, it's the response of the chief priests and the Pharisees. These Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders had successfully convinced the people and Pilate to have Jesus crucified. You'd think that their response to the crucifixion would be celebration, congratulating themselves on a job well done. And yet clearly the religious elite of Jesus' day were people who did not leave things to chance, unlike the people in this next clip. <laughs> I'll just watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, well, it's, a, it's a great example of counting your chickens before they hatch, isn't it? See, unlike those in this video, the chief priests and the Pharisees were clearly the type of people who did cross all of their T's and dot all of their I's. At the end of chapter 27, the resurrection hasn't even taken place. And yet the religious leaders are doing all that they can to ensure that there are absolutely no chances of failure, no surprise twists that will spoil their plot. So having succeeded in killing Jesus, the next day they went back to Pilate to prevent what they considered to be the chance of a dangerous deception. And in verse 65, Pilate agrees to their request, take a guard and make the tomb as secure as you know how to. A military guard and the ancient equivalent of police do not cross tape secured the dead body of Jesus inside the tomb. In their minds, there was no way that anyone was getting Jesus out of that grave. But interestingly, notice what is the motivation for the religious leaders' actions. Verse 63, Sir, they said, we remember that while he was alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Their statement reveals that they had seen the same miracles and had heard the same teaching as everyone else. And yet while the disciples and the crowd had responded with amazement, the leaders respond in stubborn disbelief. They refused to accept that Jesus was who he claimed to be, in spite of all the evidence that he offered. 
the leader's preconceived conclusions meant that they evaluated Jesus as nothing more than a deceiver. In the video of the penalty, the shooter never claimed in advance that he would kick it off the crossbar, making it spin in such a way that it would bounce into the goal. His response shows that he never anticipated such an amazing outcome. But Jesus, in contrast, had said on a number of occasions before it happened that he would die and he would rise again. As we contemplated on Friday, Jesus' death was the means of granting us access back into relationship with God. Jesus dealt with our sin problem, our rejection of God and his ways. His death tore the curtain of separation in two. But Jesus had told his disciples and anyone who would listen that he wouldn't just die, but that he would rise again. And it's for this reason that the religious leaders go to so much effort to secure the tomb. No other religious leader has made such a bold claim that he would die and rise again three days later. But the religious leaders refused to acknowledge Jesus' claim or their need of a curtain terror. They thought that they were the curtain keepers, the ones who determined who could be close to God. Jesus' claims were tossed in the rubbish as nothing more than the delusions of an unschooled carpenter from Nazareth. And in this response, I think that the chief priests and Pharisees are not so different from many people today. Many people today also categorically deny the very possibility of someone coming back from the dead. Though hearing Jesus' claims and evidence backing them up, they refuse to accept that Jesus is the one way back to the Father. And while they don't have the opportunity to post a guard at the tomb, they do mock the very idea of resurrection. And so they turn their backs on Jesus, not because of a lack of evidence, but because they rule out all of the evidence in advance. What is rightly considered the ultimate treasure is written off as the ultimate deception. And it's far too easy for us in our modern world to do. Science has proven that dead people don't come back to life. Our experience seems to back science up. I've never seen anyone rise from the dead. And yet Jesus insists that there is a new life made possible by his death. And his resurrection confirms the truth of his claim. So the question for us is, are we willing to let the evidence speak? In chapters 28, in, sorry, in chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, we move on to the second reactions, that of the women and of the guards. In the previous verses, the response was to the potential for resurrection fraud. Now it is reactions to the resurrection having taken place. In verse 1, we hear of the plans of the women to visit the tomb. Verse 2, there's a violent earthquake. It's caused by an angel who comes down to the tomb, rolls the stone out of the way, and uses that stone as his seat. His appearance was like lightning, clothes white as snow, verse 3. And when they see him, the soldiers who'd been standing guard are so afraid that they shake and become like dead men. Rather than being the ones with the power to block access to the tomb, they are rendered powerless. 
In contrast, because they're seeking the crucified Jesus, the women in verse 5 have nothing to fear. The first words of the angels spoken to the women are, do not be afraid. Come and see. The angel's invitation in verse 6 means that we're supposed to notice that the stone is not rolled out of the way to let the resurrected Jesus out of the tomb. It's to allow others into the tomb to see the evidence of what has already taken place. Verse 6, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Invited to see the evidence, an empty tomb. They are then sent to tell the disciples the authorised explanation of what has happened. Jesus has risen, just as he said he would. And we see from their response that the right response to the evidence is to go quickly and tell others the amazing news. While still fearful, like, unlike the soldiers, the women are also joyful and do exactly what they're told to do. Verse 8, they run to tell the disciples. And as they are going, Jesus meets them on the way. After greeting them, the women grab onto Jesus and worship him. And then Jesus repeats the angel's earlier message, beginning in verse 10. Do not be afraid. See, fear is no longer an appropriate response. Now, I take it that Jesus' first words are not a rebuke, or at most, a very, very gentle one. The women were already doing the main thing that they'd been told to do, run and tell the disciples. And yet so great was what had taken place that fear was an inappropriate feeling to accompany their joy. The resurrection, responded to rightly, drives out fear. And with this appropriate adjustment made, Jesus sends the women on their way to tell others, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And the women recommence their running. It's a fascinating comparison, isn't it? Same event, but two very different responses. The soldier's response. They see the stone rolled away. They see that there's no body in the tomb. They see the angel and they're paralysed. Fear, trembling, inability to do their job. The women's response. They also see the stone rolled away. They see that there is no body in the tomb. They see the angel. And feeling fear mixed with joy, they run to do the job of telling others. The women initially don't get any further evidence than the soldiers do. They don't see the resurrection take place. That They don't initially meet the resurrected Jesus. And yet, because the tomb is empty, they run as instructed. They don't wait for more evidence before they obey. And surely in this, they demonstrate to us the right response to the empty tomb. Sometimes we hesitate to share, wanting more proof. We hesitate because we're scared. We want God to answer this question or explain that detail. We'll go after he answers our prayer for boldness. But his angelic messenger says, run with the message. And Jesus repeats, run with the message. So we're supposed to see that this is too good news to keep to ourselves. It's right to worship, to not be afraid, 
right to tell others this great news. In response to Jesus' resurrection, are we runners who take the good news? In verses 11 to 15, we observe this final response of the soldiers, chief priests and elders. By this time, some of the soldiers have recovered enough to run to the chief priests. Having seen the angel in the empty tomb, all they can do is report what had happened. So extraordinary are these events that no made-up story could go close to explaining it. And yet while the details of their discussion are passed over, one brief verse, verse 12, summarises that the chief priests and elders' response is to do exactly that, concoct a plan to try to cover up the evidence. In hindsight, they realise that they've been their own worst enemy. No one actually saw the resurrection take place. That, that happened behind a stone. But now that the stone has been rolled away, no one can deny that the tomb is empty. If they had not arranged for this guard and Pilate's seal, it would be easy to claim that some zealous disciples had come and stolen the body. But the problem was that they had made the tomb as secure as was humanly possible. The combined mind of Rome and Jewish religious leaders had tried to seal the tomb. They'd done everything in their power to keep Jesus in. And yet despite their best efforts, the tomb was empty. You'd hope that finally the evidence would be convincing. What else could the empty tomb mean? But clearly nothing could change their minds. So committed to their existing evaluation of Jesus were they, that they were willing to pay off the guards rather than believe. I think it's incredibly sad. So there was no other explanation. Seeing should have been believing. But looking into the same tomb results in two opposite responses. Rather than joy, there's a hardening of resolve to deny the facts. Rather than running to tell others that Jesus is risen from the dead, the guards run to the Jewish religious leaders to make up a story to cover up what had happened. Rather than spreading the truth for free, they spread a lie for money, a lie that had persisted in Matthew's day and 2,000 years later continues to be peddled out by some. And so we're left to consider, why does Matthew choose to focus on these responses? If you read the other Gospels, they tell us about Jesus' other appearances to his disciples. They tell of the restoration of Peter. We read of Jesus' appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and allowing Thomas to see and touch the nail holes in his hands. But Matthew only records these good and bad responses that took place. And I think by implication, he asked us the question, how are we responding to Jesus' resurrection? What value do we give it? In closing, I want to develop a little further the three responses I've already mentioned. Firstly, have you already prejudged Jesus? Like the chief priests and the Pharisees, we can presume what is and isn't possible. What was undisputed at the time was that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. If the religious leaders had been able to, 
the easiest way to end this claim of the resurrection would have been simply to produce the body. But clearly they couldn't. The body was no longer there. The tomb is empty. Does anyone seriously believe that a group of men who just hours earlier had run for their lives pulled themselves back together, hatched a plan that got them around Roman guards, snatched the body, and not a single one of them were caught? Now, I think that's truly unbelievable. The empty tomb guarded by soldiers is powerful evidence that Jesus really did rise. If you are not yet convinced... One of the most important questions you need to ask yourself is, are you willing to let the evidence speak? Are you reading the Gospels with an openness to the possibility that Jesus really could be the one that he claimed to be? Or are you just looking for ways around the evidence, raising excuses? Easter is a great time to humble ourselves to admit that we've been keeping Jesus at arm's length, to stop rejecting the access that's already been granted and accepted instead with gratitude. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, then there is no better day than today. The second response is from those, most of us, who are already followers of Jesus. It's very easy for us to hear the account of the resurrection and because it's so familiar, to have lost some of the joy that those women felt on that first day. We believe that it took place, but we can often be fearful and paralysed by life, worn down and jaded by personal situations, by our society and the things that are going on in it. I think that the account of the first Easter Sunday is a challenge to us to reflect again on what matters, to be reminded that death does not win, to be stunned anew that Jesus had told everyone in advance that he had to die to defeat death. And then he actually did it, access granted. He willingly did what was needed to tear the curtain. But his death was not the end, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection is not just a historical event. It is also a preview of what is going to happen to all who trust in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection anticipates the resurrection that is available to all who trust in him. Now, if that thought doesn't bring back some of the joy, then maybe we have become a little bit too focused on the things of this earth. And while there's the potential to wrongly turn the description of the women's response into a prescription for how we should respond, I think it is right to read it as a strong encouragement for all disciples to be enthusiastic messengers, to be eager to take the message of an empty tomb to others. Even without fully grasping everything that had taken place, the women ran to tell others. Sometimes we excuse our hesitancy to go with the good news because, well, we don't really know what to say. We don't know how to answer people's tough questions. We're not sure how to say it nicely. But I think that the women's example pushes us to give it a go anyway. This news of Jesus' resurrection is too good to keep to ourselves. Are you scared? 
Are you not sure how to tell others? Perhaps worried that people won't listen? Do you feel that you're not considered by society to be the best one to do this job? Well, great. It sounds like you've got exactly the same qualifications as the women who ran from the tomb on that first Sunday. May our contemplating the vastly different responses on the original Easter morning inspire us to respond the right way. May reflecting on the contrasting values given by the women and Jesus' opposition help us to rightly value Jesus' resurrection. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for today, a day in the calendar that comes around each year, sometimes too quickly, we think, but can it ever be too quickly to be reminded of this amazing news that Jesus not only died to make the way for us to be back in relationship with you, but he then rose again, demonstrating that death had been defeated, that resurrection is possible and resurrection is available. Lord, I pray that you would enable each one of us to place our trust rightly in Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.